0: Good morning. I invite you to join me in the reading of Scripture. We're reading from Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. If you find a Bible in front of you, it's on page 970. And the the title is, is called All Things in Common. This is this great work that was happening in the church. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power the apostles were giving testimony in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as they had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which translated is the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. chapter five, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, however, He kept back a part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to the people, but to God. When he heard those words ananias dropped dead and a great fear came on all who heard the young men got up wrapped his body carried him out and buried him about three hours later his wife came in not knowing what had happened tell me peter asked her did you sell the land for this price yes for that price she said then peter said to her why did you agree to test the lord test the spirit of the lord Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all those who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks for reading that, Sharon. Well, hello there. My name is uh, Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone, and it is my privilege this morning to look at this passage together with you and to lead us as we consider what uh, God might be uh, wanting to speak to us about this morning through his word. And so our passage uh, is, this this point in Acts is where we're going to be taking a bit of a pause in the book of Acts, and for the summer we're going to be starting a new uh, sermon series, and then we're going to pick up. Um, later in the fall, uh, right where we left off. And so it's a bit of a discouraging story to end on <laughs> as two people fall down dead. Uh, but if you look at the next few verses, you'll see things get a little bit more positive after that. And we're going to look at why this is in the scripture and why God uh, would have uh, preserved this story for us to to reflect on and to, and to know about. And so, like I said, we're taking a break from the book of Acts. We're going to be starting a a new sermon series um, from starting next week until uh, September 8th. And it's called, we're calling it Voices from the Church. And uh, we've asked different people connected to Cornerstone to come and preach on one of the big ideas or themes uh, that's been burning on their hearts for the church at this time. And so we're going to be hearing a lot of different um, topics, a lot of different um, jumping around the scriptures as, as different people come and speak to us. And we're excited to be hearing from a lot of new voices and And uh, we think there's a lot of value in hearing the diversity of voices. So we're excited for that. Um, But at this point, we're going to kind of finish off this this section of Acts. And then, like I said, we'll return to it uh, in the fall. So let me just pray. Uh, We'll stop there and pray and uh, dive into this passage. And so, Father, we want to come to you with uh, humility this morning. We want to come to you with the knowledge of 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 who you are, that you are the creator and the sustainer of the universe, that you made all things, you have ownership over all things. There's no part of this whole universe that you can't declare it's mine. And so we want to come to you humbly this morning and we want to look at your word. And as we read a story that in, in some ways might seem challenging to understand what was happening here Uh, We just want to humble ourselves now in this moment to to be able to receive and to be able to hear from you, uh, the one who made us, the one who knows us, the one who's the perfect judge of all things. And so, Father, we need you to reveal yourself to us. And so we come with that ask. We come with with a, a need to have you come to us. And so we make ourselves open to you and we invite you now. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So at this point in Acts, the church is still very young. We're just in chapter 4, going into chapter 2. Um, the news of Jesus' death and resurrection uh, is spreading. It's really exploding out from this small group of people that were following him around, primarily his disciples, the apostles. And then it's, the, the, the news is spreading, um, and different points we see it explodes even more. You know, uh, right at the beginning of Peter's sermon uh, that I looked at last time, there are a few thousand that came to know, uh, to put their faith in Christ at that time. And, and, and the, the message and the power of Jesus is spreading. People are being healed. Um, there are, there, and people are going from city to city, even uh, ahead of the disciples and the apostles who are the leaders of this movement. And they're spreading this news of Jesus, that something is happening. And as we looked at last week, um, as Matt showed earlier in Acts chapter 4, they're beginning to experience persecution that, that it's, it's almost so disruptive that people are wondering, uh, like, what is happening. And so there's some imprisonment. Um, and now, even in the midst of that, the news of Jesus is spreading and people are starting to have, it's starting to have a dramatic impact on their life. And so we're seeing this right away, kind of in these uh, in these first verses, as it's describing what these uh, Christians, uh, how they were relating to each other, and what their lives were looking at, were looking like. See, one of the key things that Jesus uh, taught, and one of the key things that um, kind of was, is core to following in Jesus and being having your identity as, in Jesus, is that you are you're now relating to God as Father. That you, you see him as father, you relate to him as father, which means one of the implications of that is that uh, you are a child of God. And so as you consider yourself a child of God, then you actually consider the people that are also following Jesus, that also have put their faith in him, fellow children of God. Which means that God is forming a new kind of family. It's, it's, it's one of the dominant metaphors in the church um, that we see in the New Testament is that the church is this new family that God is bringing together and using. And so if you think about family, you think about people that you, you know, you're, you're all of a sudden realizing if someone's part of your family, you, you're, there's a bit of a commitment you have to them to care for their needs. And if you think about as the church is expanding and there's new people coming into this faith and there's new people who you have no idea who they are, you have no connection to them whatsoever, but all of a sudden we're in this new relationship called family. And if I'm to actually take this idea seriously, that means that I'm starting to start thinking of you and caring about your needs as I would as part of my family. That even though I have no connection to you outside of this faith that we share, that somehow your needs are become important to me. You know, and we also, as we think about family, you have this desire to spend time with each other. You have this this impulse that if we are, as you say, we are family, then we should be connected, and we should actually be gathering together on a semi-regularly basis. For example, Sunday morning. And so they were started to doing this immediately. That's what we see in the early church, that they had this impulse to take care of each other's needs, and they had this impulse to start gathering together and spending time together as you would with your family. And so it's actually a very radical idea that you would become family with someone that you otherwise wouldn't have anything else in common with. This is like this is a pretty explosive idea actually in in the history of kind of worldviews that we would relate to each other as part of the family. That we have this shared understanding of who we are of who Jesus is, and that's actually the deepest level of connection that you can have with someone. It's it's it goes beyond you know our hobbies. It goes beyond like our interests. It goes beyond people of your so your same age. It goes beyond uh, people who are you're simply blood related to it. There's something about sharing the same identity in Jesus that it's this deeper level of connection that can bring this diverse group of people that who otherwise wouldn't really have any business being together together and to call each other family. It's the reason why you can have as diverse a group of people in this room together right now. And you might look around and say, well, we're actually not that diverse. There's probably a lot more things we have in common than we do. Well, then I would invite you to come to um, our, the uh, Caribbean Workers Outreach Program service tonight because we're having communion together. And we're, we're celebrating our union in Christ together. Or I invite you to come to a, the, our next trip to Burundi, where you can, you can go into a culture that probably couldn't be more different than your experience here, and relate to people who you have so little in common with. And yet, there's something about this connection you have, there's shared faith that there's, it's so it's hard to explain, but there's this connection you feel that we, that we are family that we have the same Father. We have the same identity, this shared identity. And it's that shared understanding that brings a profound sense of connection. There is a oneness you feel, or a oneness you ought to feel, when we think about this new revolutionary idea that, that we are more united than we are divided because of our Creator, the one who made us. And it, says, it, says, it describes it in this way at, in verse 32. It says, All the believers were in one heart and mind. All the believers were one in heart and mind. It's sounding like the fulfillment of various promises God had made throughout the Old Testament. And, and through prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There, God said things like this through these prophets. He said, I will give them one heart in one way. He, he repeated that line several times through different prophets. A day will coming or will be coming where I'm going to give them one heart and one way. Uh, tied to that, he says I'm going to take away this st- this heart of stone that they have. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. They're going to be knit together. And now the language of acts is really sounding like fulfillment language here, where they are one in heart and mind. God is creating a new kind of family, not based on your blood line to Abraham or your bloodline to each other, but on your confession, your declaration of your need for Jesus. Families are ideally meant to be a place of unconditional love, of care, of connection. Families are meant to be environments uh, where we feel most safe and supportive. Now, I know that's not everyone's experience. And I think that's probably why it's so tragic, actually, when that is not your experience. Because it's, it's, it's meant to be this environment where we're fostered and developed and where we can feel safe and the freedom to grow in the safety of love and care. And it's, it's extremely tragic when that's not someone's experience of family. And I think it can often be one of the most damaging ways we experience the brokenness of the world when family is not, to, is not the way in which it's supposed to be and the way that God intended it to be. But God here is saying, I'm going to create a new kind of family. And this new family is meant to be a prophetic voice to a watching world. And you now the church hasn't always done this well either. I, I, I know that very well. But here in in these early moments of the church, I think they got it. I think this is a great illustration of how the church is operating in the way that it was intended to, actually. I'll read this little section again. It says, No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, that there was no needy person. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold, sold them, bought money for the sales, and put it toward the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. There was no needy person among them. People were so committed to each other. That if you're if you're experiencing lack and I have access, I, I can't help it because I'm so committed to you that I want to I want to make sure that your needs are met. It's an amazing it's an amazing thing to imagine. This is actually the second time that Luke has mentioned this kind of behavior. In Acts, we're only in Acts chapter four. It's the second time he's mentioned it. It's something that was worth mentioning more than once, apparently. One commentator I I wrote I read as I was studying for this passage, uh, pointed out that it's feeling like the fulfillment of the Sabbath year. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, when the Israelites were you know just kind of coming out of the uh, their slavery in Egypt, God gives them a bunch of new. Uh, rules and laws to live by as they start this new nation. And one of the things that he establishes very early on is this the idea of a Sabbath. And connected to that was this, the idea of a Sabbath year. So at the end of seven years, you would have a year where every financial debt would be released. It was a way of resetting the economic system. That uh, after seven years, everyone, so even if you had, you had to actually still give someone a loan even in the sixth year, knowing that, that they, you would have to release it in the seventh year. But it was a way to reset the system. And he says, the the point of this in Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 is that so that there would be no poor among you. There would be no poor among you. And, And from what I understand, there is no account in Scripture of the Israelites following this command. I don't think the Sabbath year was ever practiced in the whole history of Israel according to what we know in Scripture But now there has been a new kind of forgiveness. In, in, the, in the Old Testament laws there was a forgiveness of debt. Now there's been a new kind of forgiveness unleashed on, on God's people, and it's not a financial kind of forgiveness. It's a, it's a sin forgiveness. You've been released from the debt of your sin because of what Jesus has done. And what's the result? I think it's probably the first time in, the, in all of Scripture where the, the, this picture that there would be no poor among you is finally fulfilled in this moment. It says there is no needy person among them. See, this is what the cross of Jesus does to us. When we understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it changes, it changes how we think about our faith from being primarily outward commands to follow to an inward transformation of our desires. It's not to say there aren't things outwardly that we still need to follow, and you know there are still things that, that we need to say, yes, I, I'm going to follow this thing, but it's actually not the most helpful way to think about it. It's much more helpful and it's much more accurate to say that what this message does to us is it changes something within us, it changes the desires of our heart, and the fulfillment of that is actually the living out of these rules that God had set out so long ago. That's why when Jesus is asked, you know, about the laws, he says, if if you're genuinely loving God and if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you're you're fulfilling the law. But the question is, how do you produce genuine love in yourself for God and for neighbor? That's the big question. And the, the, the Christians at the time were grasping something about what Jesus had done, and it was producing in them genuine, radical love for God and for their neighbors. And that's why this passage isn't advocating for, you know, a new state version of Christian communism. It's describing what happens outwardly when someone's heart has been transformed inwardly by their now new understanding of their reconciliation to God. So I don't believe this passage is teaching that we all need to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. You know, the people that did this were noted as being exceptional. Um, even even then, it wasn't the norm. They were exceptional cases of this. Now, it may mean that some of us should be doing this. I'm not saying you shouldn't and that you've got we've got a free pass. I'm just saying it's I don't think this is what it's saying. That we, This is what the expectation is of all Christians. But what I do for sure think it's saying is that the people we see as family in our lives needs to change. If you do not have some level of understanding of people outside of your blood relations as also family to you, that needs to change. What also needs to change is the way we are viewing our possessions and our money. It said they were no longer uh, looking at their possessions as their own. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. That has to be changing in us. What also has to be changing in us is that the people who we see as our responsibility to take care of. Take care of. I think that the scope of people that we think it's my responsibility to take care of needs to expand dramatically. I don't know what that looks like always, and that it looks different for each person, but what's clear here is that the result of this work in their heart was that they saw everyone around them, their fellow Christians as as people, that they had a responsibility to take care of. And they weren't satisfied until all the needs were met. If we aren't seeing these kinds of changes in our lives, then I think we need to ask ourselves some pretty hard questions. And so the passage moves on to highlight an example of this radical generosity, and it gives us this short little description of this man named Joseph, who they later called uh, Barnabas, who we see more of later in Acts, um, who who is a wealthy man, and he sells his... He sells his property, and he lays the the money completely at the apostles' feet, which is this picture of submission. And he's saying, do with it as you wish. I'm I'm releasing complete control. It it was mine, but I see now that it's not mine to hold on, and I'm giving it to you to take care of where the needs are. It's amazing. But then immediately we're told about a husband and a wife named Ananias and Sapphira who also sold a piece of property. And perhaps they were inspired by what Bartimaeus had done. Perhaps there were a few people that were doing this and they were getting a lot of recognition and honor. And they were inspired, perhaps, that they wanted to do something very similar. But it seems like they had different motivations, actually. Or to give them the benefit of a doubt, perhaps they had mixed motivations. Ananias decides, with his wife's knowledge, we're specifically told to sell their property completely as well. In the same way that Barnabas did. And they want to go to the apostles' feet as well and give the same presentation of, we're, we're, we're giving you everything that, that came from this sale and we want you to use it. But the difference here, and the crucial difference, is that actually wasn't the case. It wasn't all, even though it was presented as all. reality was they were keeping a portion back for themselves and lying about how much they were giving and Peter in this moment somehow is aware of what's happening we don't know how he was aware it seems like the way the story is told that God somehow is sh- like giving them this nudge or this uh, word of knowledge even in the moment of what's happening and so Peter speaks out against Ananias in that moment as he's presenting the money Peter explained, Ananias, you didn't have to give anything. But in pretending to give everything, you're now no longer being filled by the Spirit. But he uses really strong language here. He says you're under Satan's control. And in lying to the church, Ananias, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God. And you are responsible for this action because you dream this idea up in your own heart. And the moment that Peter says this to Ananias, he falls down dead. The men are shocked by this. They're obviously filled with fear, and they come and bury his body very quickly. Partially because of it being a hot climate and they didn't have ways to cool things effectively. you probably had to do that quickly, but also probably out of fear of what has just happened? We need to take care of this thing right away. And three hours pass, and his wife, Sapphira, comes to where Peter is, who is unaware of just happened. what just happened to her husband. And Peter asks her how much money they received for the land. In a sense, I think, giving her a chance to respond differently or just demonstrate her innocence. But she makes a decision, and she tells the same lie that Ananias told, revealing that she was involved in the effort to deceive everyone. And Peter says this to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? You know, you can read that in a judgmental way, like how could you? But I think it's more of a heartbroken way. How could you do this? How could you do this? And in that moment, he tells her what had happened to her husband. And as he finishes saying his words, the same fate comes to her and she falls down dead. The result of this incident, we're told, is the whole church and all who heard about these events were seized by fear. So the question is was this an act of divine judgment? Was God striking them down dead? It's worth noting, at least, that the passage does not explicitly say God struck them down, it simply says they fell down dead. Does this mean that God had an active role in their death, or did, as one theologian tries to say, that God needed to do nothing more than withdraw his protection on them, thereby allowing the ever-present Lord of death to do what he is always biting at the bit to do, namely kill, steal, and destroy. That might just be semantics, but it seems to me at least that however you try to deal with this, It's clear that God responded to the sin of Ananias and Sapphira and it resulted in their death. So the question I just want to spend a couple minutes thinking about is how should we feel about this? How should we feel about this little situation here? Um, I I try to think of three different ways that we could respond to this scenario. And I think all of us are probably tempted to go in each direction. The first one is we could say that God is cruel, that he is vindictive, easily angered, and has unreasonably high standards. That was a weird slide for me to type out. <laughs> you know, you could say, who cares that they didn't give everything? Just giving something was admirable, wasn't it? They didn't have to. You no, know, isn't that a little Unreasonable. Doesn't that punishment not really match the crime? They still gave a large portion of their their wealth away to help the needy and the poor in their country. And uh, they didn't give it all, okay? And they lied a little bit about it. And now they're dead. What kind of God would do that? In my opinion, it seems like they would have to be cruel, vindictive, you know, easily angered, have unreasonably high standards, they demand perfection or nothing. You know, it, it's not hard to look at this passage this way, actually. But here's why I don't think that's a fair way to see this. I just want to make three quick points. God is perpetually showing patience and mercy on people. That sin in way more uh, dramatic ways than this. To accuse of being, him of being easily angered would be so, so unfair. This is not the norm. This kind of response to sin is actually exceptionally rare in scripture. Perhaps differently than the perception you might have. This is not, God is not just striking people down left and right. This is so rare in scripture that this kind of thing happens in response to sin. It's not fair to say that God is easily angered. You no, know, God has just gone to the fullest extent possible to demonstrate that he's not motivated by revenge or that he's not vindictive. He just, you know, uh, weeks earlier, laid down his life for his enemies. He he allowed himself to be brutally murdered by the people who were against him out of a, a heart of compassion and love for his people. To then accuse him of being vindictive, I don't think is fair. to, to make a judgment of God based on this situation. And the other point I'd like to make is this is a judgment on someone who is already part of the church. This is not just a random person lying and they're dead. This is someone who's part of the church, which I would like to make the case, which means that, you know, this was the end of their life, but guess what the scripture teaches us? To die is gain. And so... I, I think that as this feels harsh and, of course, to be struck down dead is a, is, is a strong reaction. But if we think about it from their perspective, I believe that Ananias and Sapphira, it seems they were a part of the church. I mean, we don't know for sure, obviously, but it seems like they had faith in Jesus to some extent. And it seems like, perhaps, maybe, you know, they're with Christ. And so from their perspective, it may not be as bad as it seems The other way you could view this is that this is a father being overly harsh in his punishment as a way to teach his kids a lesson through fear. You know, if if it says this resulted in fear throughout the church, is that a good motivating force? Fear. Is it possible that when Ananias and Sapphira saw the great generosity of Barnabas, they genuinely wanted to follow suit? But their motivations were mixed, and the money was in hand, and you know they could not live up to their original intention. And so, in a moment, they they lied. You know, they would have been new Christians. Maybe their lifestyle before was much different. They were really new at this. You know, wouldn't have been helpful to give them a little patience, give them a bit of time, opportunity to, to repent, perhaps. I was reminded of a a reoccurring bit or scene from a TV show that I used to watch called Arrested Development. Um, It's a bit of a complicated show to explain, but essentially it's about this really dysfunctional family uh, whose business is dealing with bankruptcy and they have all sorts of legal problems. And the show just is about these relationships and how they interact with each other. And the dad, um, you know, often tries to in, or, in order to teach his kids lessons constructs these cons, um, these intricate scenarios to teach his kid a valuable life lesson, so one of the things he does like repeatedly throughout the show is he gets one of his uh, friends and former employees, uh, J Walter Weatherman, who, who has only one arm, and uh, he calls him up and says, "I want to teach my kid a lesson and uh, and so he, he arranges this scenario to happen and so um, one particular one is an example of this would be uh, like the kids use up all the milk, and they're supposed to leave a note that it's out so that you know the parents could could go out on their way home from work and, and pick it up and so the father comes home and he discovers that there was no there's no milk, there was no note left, and so a he's got he's to teach them a lesson and so he bring, puts all the kids in the car, drives to the store, and on the way to the store they they hit his friend, and as they hit him, his one arm goes flying off. The kids are screaming, like, what is happening? And then the father is yelling, if only you'd left a note, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> and then it's inevitably what happens every time is that Jay Walter Retherman, with his one arm missing, would come to the window or up to the kids and say, that's why you don't leave a, or that's why you always leave a note. And it was just like this terrifying, <laughs> and it's, it's meant to be humorous, but it's just like this exaggerated, like, extreme version of a parent trying to teach their kid a lesson through, like, instilling this terrifying uh, response of like, fear to this mistake that they had made. And is this, is this kind of what's happening here? Is God overreacting? Is he a, is he a parent using this elaborate scheme to, to instill fear in his children so that they would learn this lesson? You know, it's hard to know how things would have been different if given him a chance to respond and the testimony of that. What we do know is what happened after this situation, even though they were there is great fear. It says, uh, just the next few verses, it says that the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to gather in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So they're highly regarded by the people. The apostles are still performing miracles. And it says, nevertheless, more and more women and men believed in the Lord, and they were added to their number. The church actually begins to grow even more from this point. God was doing a new thing in the world. And the implications of this thing were not just for the people in that time, and that place. He was doing a new work in the world from that point on until the end. And it was so important that God would, would... His new work would be in the way that he wanted it to be. That this... You know, we experience the brokenness of the church and it's so painful... And this response that God has to sin is actually saying, I care about the purity of the church as well. That holiness is something we long for when we experience a life of unholiness hurting us. And God is committed to the holiness of his church. And so there's another way in which we could see this, and this is the way that I would suggest that we look at this story. That their punishment was a sanctifying discipline at a critical stage in the life of the church. It was a sanctifying discipline at a critical stage in the life of the church. You know, another dominant metaphor for the church is the temple of God. And in, in the old testament, there's there's so many rules around whether you like whether you could enter the the different levels of the, the temple and who was allowed to do that because God's holiness was so important. It was so important that we understand that, that aspect of God. And the church is to now, the, the New Testament metaphor continued, is that, the, that no longer is God's presence confined to a building that represents where he is, but the church now becomes the occupier of God's presence in this world. And if the church is to take the place of the temple of God, the, the place of his presence, then holiness is not an optional extra. And how God chooses to make that point in, this, in the last analysis is up to him because he is the only one who knows the human heart. We don't get to ever make those kind of judgments. That's not the, that's not the point you can draw from this. The point is he is the, he is the true and righteous judge that knows the human heart and if he determines that that is the right thing to do in that moment for that time, then we would say, God, we trust you in that. The earliest Christians were quite clear on this. that the, To name the name of Jesus and to evoke the Holy Spirit is to claim to be the temple of God. It's, and it's bound to have consequences. And our hearts that are broken when the church isn't what it's supposed to be, we, have, we share God's longing for the holiness of his people. This passage puts a very clear marker about the, about deception and greed. You know, if Ananias wanted to give some money, but not all of it, he could have sold his land and explained that he that's what he was doing. It would have been fine. If he was embarrassed about only giving a portion while other people were giving it all, he could have just not sold his property at all. Barnabas was mentioned as an example of someone doing something exceptionally noteworthy, not seen as an expectation for all. Ananias was under no compulsion to do the same thing, which means the problem wasn't that he didn't give everything. The problem was his deception and lying. And my my guess on Ananias and Sapphira isn't that their temptation was wealth. I think they were probably already, they had land. They were landowners. They probably had wealth. Their temptation was probably reputation. They likely wanted the recognition and honor that people like Barnabas were receiving. And so they made an idol out of their reputation. They were bringing idolatry in a significant, significant way into the church. See, the thing that they couldn't let go of was what others thought of them. That was a thing they just couldn't let go of to fully embrace God. It was a thing that was still gripping their heart, that I still have to hold on to what i think what other people think of me and it's got such a controlling force on me that i'm unwilling to release that and actually give my life completely to god in this moment which means that that thing that was holding to their heart it was corrupting them it was enslaving them it controlled them it prevented them from living the life god had always intended for them It's the same reason the Israelites never celebrated the the Sabbath year. Something else had their hearts and they just weren't willing to let go of it. And although a scenario like this will probably unlikely be something you ever have to face, I, I know for a fact that idols, these kinds of idols grip our hearts, my heart, your heart, in the same kind of way. Here's a quote from Tim Keller from his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, Sin in our hearts affects our basic motivational drives, so they become idolatrous. Deep idols. Some people are strongly motivated by a desire for influence and power, while others are more excited by approval and appreciation. Some want emotional and physical comfort more than anything else, while still others want security, the control of their environment. People with the deep idol of power do not mind being unpopular in order to gain influence. People who are most motivated by approval are the opposite. They will gladly lose power and control as long as everything, everyone thinks, well of them. Each deep idol, power, approval, comfort, or control generates a different set of fears in a different set of hopes. That is not a comprehensive list, but I would, guess, I would guess that almost all of us in this room are dealing with one of these idols right now in our own heart. It's got a grip on us. And it's enslaving us. And it's corrupting us. It's controlling us. It's preventing you from from living the life that God wants you to live, to experience the freedom from these things in your own life. He says, people who are most motivated by approval are the opposite. They will gladly lose power and control as long as everyone thinks well of them. What did Ananias and Sapphira do? They were giving up their wealth of their land. So that, why? So that people would think well of them. This is where Ananias and Sapphira got stuck. Where do you get stuck? Whatever that is for you, the way out, and I I am convinced the only way out, is to see God's grace for you. Look what it says was changing the lives of the disciples so that they would give up their possessions and make sure there was no needy person among them. Did you catch it? Verse 33. God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. What was the result of grace working powerfully within them? There was no needy person among them. The idols of comfort, of control... Of power were being broken, released. And people didn't, they weren't enslaved by the things that they owned. They weren't enslaved by their own desires and taking care of themselves. They had the freedom from their things and their own desires to see people and to see needs and to release the things that they have. It's only when we look at Jesus. It's only when we look at the grace that Jesus showed to us on the cross that we find the freedom to let go of these things. The security that we find in these idols are nothing compared to what Jesus wants to offer you. It's nothing. He has everything you need. If you're looking for influence, if you're looking for power, for approval, for appreciation, for comfort, for security for control, if you're looking for these things, Jesus is offering them to you. And it's not the kind of way that the world offers it to you. But it's a much better way. And so let's pray. Father, we long to see the church so so concerned for, so captivated by their love for others. God, we long to see this, this, that it could be said of us in this time that there is no need among us. God, we know that our hearts are controlled by idols. I know that my heart is controlled by idols. We so desperately need you to change us. We so desperately long for freedom. God, we're convinced that freedom looks like us doing whatever we want. That comfort means that we would surround ourselves with comfortable things. That safety looks like a big bank account. That the kind of power that we can have over people is the kind of power that, that we're looking for and not the power found in you. God, we, we are convinced, we constantly are tempted and give in to these temptations. And so God, we need your help. We need the freedom that grace offers to release us. And God, we know even this morning, there are, there, there are, all, of, all of us are at different stages of this and in different ways we are affected by these things. And so you know each one of us. You know what grips our heart. You've seen it in our lives. You see it right now in this moment. And so God, I pray that you would bring freedom even right now. Help us to see it for what it is. Help us to see you for who you are. Give us the confidence to walk and run towards you, actually, as the Father running towards us with open arms. God, your grace is sufficient. We believe that you know us better than we know ourselves. We believe that you know, actually, and you're concerned for our joy more than even we are. So help us to trust you with that. So, God, that we would be the kind of people that you always intended, that we'd be the kind of church that you always wanted the church to be. We do this not only for our good, God, but for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is a connection time in our service. It's an opportunity to uh, connect with people around you. Unfortunately, we don't have coffee this morning, and we won't be having it for the summer. Uh, But it's still an opportunity to talk with those uh, you haven't seen in a while or um, need to catch up with. uh, Kids are still uh, available to be received at the Kids' wing, so you can head over there. Um, And we'll gather shortly again to worship through music uh, in about five minutes.